Welcome to the Dashboard Effect Podcast. I'm Brick Thompson. Today, we've got another interview for you in our Expert Insight series with Andy Thompson, who's founder and CEO of Notch Partners, which is a boutique executive talent consultancy retained by some of the country's leading private equity firms. John and Andy had a great discussion, and let's just get into it now. So before founding Notch in 2002, Andy was managing director for Prime Media Ventures. His early career also included a stint at McKinsey & Co. Notch Partners provides C-suite talent to private equity firms to help them develop proprietary deal flow, industry insight, uh, place experienced management teams, board members, etc. We'll get into that in some detail. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm interested in your uh, work and school experience and maybe how that led up to Notch Partners. I understand that you're a Harvard man. I'm curious if any of your three brothers are also Ivy Leaguers. That's an awkward question. Um, yeah. No, they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, I- I'm all for show. They're all for go. Yeah. I'll put it that yeah. way. They're state school guys. Um, so you must be proud of that. That's fantastic. But tell me in all seriousness, uh, yes. your background, how did it lead up to your business thesis, your value creation plan? How did it lead to Notch Partners? In 2002, I was uh, investing. I, I was co-managing a small venture capital fund. Um, we were part of a media company. We were part of a uh, the magazine company, actually. And that was about the time when print media had its comeuppance. Uh, the, the new media, now uh, known as the Internet, was taking over, taking all of the ad revenue and, and turning the entire industry on its head. As a result, my parent company uh, was basically out of money, and we were done, despite having really good investment returns. We were. Uh, it was time to find a new a new opportunity. My partner and I, at the time, uh, both had experience, therefore, in private equity, and our recognition uh, was that there were lots of good ideas out there, uh, both at the venture stage and the later stage. Um, and there was plenty of money. Um, actually, it's dwarfed by how much money there is out there now, but there was plenty of money at the time. Uh, what was lacking was believable, backable management teams uh, and managers with insight into how to, how to with, with the insight that would give investors the confidence to go forward with investments um, at the increasingly inflated prices that private equity started seeing even that far back. So if you like, you can think of three major ingredients, deal flow, money, and talent coming together to make good deals happen. We were addressing part of the talent equation. We thought there was a big opportunity there. We refined our focus a bit, um, but remained focused on private equity talent to drive deals. That's great. Can you give me a little more about the profile of your company, the the different uh, departments, um, and so on? We have about 30 people. Um, we are divided. We're, we're, we're organized by industry verticals. So we have, for example, a consumer group, an industrials group, business services, et cetera. Each of those teams has four or five people. Um, we have about 25 clients that have us on long-term retainer. And each of those clients will tap into usually at least two or three of our five industry vertical teams. Um, the clients themselves are all 
later stage investors, usually what we would call control investors, um, used to be called LBO investors, but private equity investors in the later stage um, buying control positions in mature companies. Um, and they'll manage anywhere between, say, a $400 million fund at the low end of our uh, client base up to one of our clients just raised a over $20 billion fund. So we serve some of the largest in the world. And is your secret sauce, if you will, the industry expertise of your staff, or is it really that uh, cadre of executives that you maintain the network of? So we have a good network of executives. We maintain a network of about 40,000 uh, primarily CEOs that we have um, a relationship with and an understanding of. But, you know, finding executives is really not all that hard. That is highly commoditized. And in fact, anybody with a LinkedIn account can find pretty much anybody. That's in contrast to where we were 20 years ago when knowing where the bodies were buried was actually a source of value that, uh, that uh, service firms could bring. No, our talent really, our, our unique capability is dealing with this somewhat uh, mercurial, somewhat uh, difficult animal, which is the very high achievement, later stage CEO level executive who has achieved everything that they need to achieve to prove to themselves their value and anyone else around them their value and is now in a stage where they can do whatever they want, including nothing. Many of our, I would, I would call most of our executives semi-retired for now by choice. And, in other I, words- Sorry, sidebar, mm -hmm. why aren't they just collecting shells and playing golf and stuff? Typically, I mean, what do you see there? I'm just curious. That's a really good question. And, and we've, I've seen thousands of these executives, so I feel qualified to answer. I'll paint with a really broad brush because you know no two people are alike and, and you don't want to generalize. But overall, these executives are people who have all the money they need um, and have tried being retired. They're anywhere between, say, 55 and 75 years old, typically, let's say 50 and 75. Um, and they've tried being retired. And, and what they have discovered, for the most part, is that you know they've built their second home. It took twice as long and took twice as much money as they expected and they're, they're sort of tired of it. Their grandchildren don't have as much time for them as they have for their grandchildren. Uh, their golf game didn't get as better as they thought it would uh, and their backs can't take 36 holes a day. And they've realized the, the privilege for which they thought they were working and that, that is to retire is actually sort of an anti-reward. The thing that they've really enjoyed is the thing that they've excelled at their entire lives, which is leading businesses, whether it's as actually operating a business as a manager or simply being a thought leader. What, what we are doing with these executives is not presenting them an opportunity to get rich because frankly, they already are. We're presenting them an opportunity to engage in um, in a business situation where there's a high bias for action, that's the way private equity firms are. They've just done a deal or they're about to do a deal and they want to make things happen in two, three years so that they can look at a good exit in four or five or as early as four or five. Um, a high bias for action where their expertise is highly valued, where they're not going to be engaged 
forever. They can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel and where their contribution is highly valued even without being the CEO themselves. So these are, we call them CEO level executives, but their contribution to private equity investors is often as an advisor, board member, chairman, or sometimes an interim executive. So is their unique or valuable profile, is it, is it uh, related to their retired and you know advisor by choice, or is it something that you guys do to help them cultivate Here's how you can really package and deliver the wisdom that you carry and bring ideas and so on. How does that go? There are, if, a, if one of our clients is working on a specific deal, <clears throat> then an executive who has long time experience in that industry as a leader, as a CEO, um, but is far enough outside of having been in the industry that their non-competes are no longer an impediment. Any one of those executives can be interesting. However, executives who want to be interesting in that way are really sort of passive with respect to getting into a relationship with private equity firms. They need to wait until a private equity firm says, here's a deal that touches your background and we'd love to get you involved. Executives who are truly determined to get involved with private equity, we advise that they do so by leading with their ideas. Uh, that can sound like shorthand for bring a deal and a private equity firm will pay attention to you, and that's certainly true. But they don't actually, most private equity firms don't actually expect you to show up with a proprietary deal in your pocket, and particularly not firms that are of any uh, reasonable size where pretty much every deal is going to go through an auction. They are, however, looking for executives who come in with a point of view about how to create value by deploying capital in a private equity context in an industry where they have experience. If they are able to articulate a thesis for how to create value in their industry um, of expertise, private equity firms will listen to them all day long, and they have basically got a, a carte blanche to talk to any private equity firm that is even remotely interested in that industry. Um, even if the private equity firms that they talk to vehemently disagree with their perspective, they respect the experience and they value that somebody's sticking their neck out and saying, here's what private equity should be doing in this industry to create value. So being proactive, being thoughtful, being organized in your thinking um, as an executive will get you 10 times the access as sort of sitting back and waiting for somebody to call you regarding your expertise. And, and you culture that with them. I, I assume you don't do that across 40,000 people. That's right. Pretty much every executive we talk to, and we probably contact about about 4,000 new executives per year. So that 40,000 is, is an asset that's been built over time. We will have a conversation with pretty much every one of them, which at some point in the conversation includes the question, how do you think private equity should be thinking about your industry? Some executives, a very small portion, two or 3%, will have an immediate, clear, crisp answer. They'll say, this is where they should be investing. These are the kinds of companies they should be talking to. And some small portion will even say, and I think that this particular company is a very attractive asset. Probably double that number, so maybe five to 10, five to 8% of all executives, if pushed, 
and if coached a little bit, are able to quickly articulate a similar point of view. So we work to identify who the executives in that small set are, and then to cultivate the slightly larger group. Um, but most executives um, carry habits from a long career of being highly talented people, highly sought after, and they're, um, they're somewhat more reactive or passive with respect to private equity opportunities. Yeah, that makes sense. Quick question. Um, is there typically a counterpart in your average PE firm that's the profile size that you, that you work with that does what you do but to a smaller scale with less expertise and focus? Or are you filling a niche that's, that's often a void? Private equity firms have for many years, for longer than, than we've been around, um, have cultivated executive relationships and many have touted the uh, differentiating uh, value of their particular executive networks. Uh, 20 years ago, that was most often manifest as a an operating partner cadre. That would be anywhere from half a dozen to 20 um, executives, many of whom had been CEOs in a previous portfolio company for that firm, um, who were considered friends of the firm. Some were on a very formal relationship, most were uh, more informal. And the theory was that between those half dozen to three dozen executives, there would always be somebody who could add value and give the unique insight needed on a specific deal. I think what we've seen is, and our clients are seeing, is that they need to be much broader than that and much more nimble than that about tapping the right talent at the right time. So we encourage our clients to maintain a bench of upwards of 100 executives and to have us on call to access one of thousands of others at just the right time. Um, did I yeah, answer your question? Yeah, that's great. One, one more sort of structural thing, and that is how does the breakdown of your services sort of percentage wise, I'm just curious what, what the appetite is for the various uh, needs that you fill are in the PE community you work with. How does it break down? What, what's the bulk of it and what's, what are the smaller pieces? So our clients, number one, most exciting thing to hear from us or from one of our executives is I have a deal idea that I think you could invest in and be differentiated due to my insight and due to your relationship with me. Um, so that, depending on how you want to look at it, that constitutes 90% of our clients' appetite. However, they know a couple of things. One, those executives are few and far between. And two, it's very hard to get an executive to want to bring that to your firm versus any other firm. And so having other ways of interacting with executives to cultivate those relationships over time is what leads you to that very important but rare and elusive byproduct, which is an idea-driven executive or really an executive-driven idea, if you like. Um, so while that is the most valuable thing, it's the least common thing that we deliver. More common would be a client coming to us, and this is at about 50-50, a client saying to us, we think there may be some opportunities to invest in industry X, let's say the car wash industry, over the next couple of years, and we would like to start identifying executives and targets 
um, with whom we can go after uh, uh, that industry. Can you help us build our executive network and identify one or two backable senior executives in the industry? That's about half. The other rough half is when a client says, we have a specific deal, it's usually an auction, that we think we want to get aggressive on, where we want to bid aggressively. Let's say, again, it's a car wash company, but we don't have any really good car wash executives on our side of the table helping us to understand whether or not this is a good target and how we might create value after buying this thing. So we do a lot of both of those, and in doing each of them, we're constantly looking for the executive-driven idea that our clients are really excited about. And then to round it out, you also read up briefs on different sectors and various analyses proactively with your internal staff. And The briefs we do are all about uh, a specific deal thesis built around an executive. So I told you about the 3% of the executives who have an idea immediately. We get that down on a piece of paper uh, because typically those executives are they have a lot more to say than anyone has time for, uh, and they have a lot more expertise than anyone can absorb in an initial meeting. So we help them to consolidate their thoughts, organize their thinking, um, to make it presentable to our clients. And then there's that slightly larger group that ought to have those ideas, and we help them, too, to form their thoughts and get it onto a piece of paper. And then we, we use that as an um, an opener uh, with our clients and to help them have very efficient conversations with executives. Gotcha. There is a, a little bit of a danger with some executives who, you know, do you have any ideas? They say, I got a million of them. Um, and, and our clients usually don't appreciate the um, somewhat undirected or multi-directed conversation that results uh, from that kind of mindset. So we help we help focus the conversation. Sure. Yeah. Uh, PE partners are busy. I've I've discovered. Um, next question. This might be patently obvious, or it may not be at the center of of sort of where you guys deal. Uh, just speaking to our PE partner audience, any thoughts on assessing an investment? Are there certain essential ingredients for a successful investment? Again, feel free to punt on this one because I got a follow up if it's not really useful to the average. Yeah, I, I sort of will punt um, by saying that that's what they do for a living and that's what they do far better than I do. Um, what we are good at is finding the executive who can help them think through not how to sort of how to do the private equity analysis of a of an industry or a company, but the specific insight on a specific company and specific industry uh, that only an operator from the industry might bring. Okay, then for let's say PE firms that aren't working with you. What advice would you have for them when thinking about an executive to help assess a deal, to put on the board, maybe even place on the team? What are some of the pitfalls that you have discovered that maybe were not intuitive, uh, were a surprise to you as you've done this for quite a while? How, how many years have you been in business? 20 years. One, I guess one that jumps to mind is that Private equity firms should be unafraid in two ways. One, uh, they should not be intimidated by an executive who ran a much larger business than the one that they're going after. Typically, that executive will have grown up through the size that they are typically looking at buying. Now, there's certainly a point at which an executive's size 
makes their um, insight on, on, on a smaller target irrelevant. But um, an executive who ran a $500 million business is often just the right person to consult to a company or to a firm that's looking at buying a $100 million business. After all, they're looking to get to 500. They're looking to exhibit the successful attributes that that $500 million business did. Um, and the executives are not turned off by that at all. I think when we're hiring um, someone, we often think about, I need to give this um, executive a slightly larger opportunity than the one that they came from. But when you're looking to bring on an advisor and collaborator, they're not nearly as focused on building their resume. They're much more focused on how can we turn this ship quickly and create a lot of a lot of value for everybody around the table. The other thing, the other thing that I would encourage private equity investors to not be afraid of is to not be afraid to stick their neck out and to say to a longtime industry veteran, "Here's what we think is going on in your industry. Here's why we think we like it." Um, the longtime industry veteran will certainly have some insight that will shape the thinking further. Um, to put it a little more uh, succinctly, the longtime industry veteran may think that the investor is wrong, but they're always going to respect that the investor stuck their neck out and said, here's what we think is going on. And they relish the opportunity to engage and correct the thinking or shape the thinking of the private equity firm. The private equity firm that is afraid that they're going to look stupid sits back, doesn't say much, hoping that everyone will maybe think that they know more than they do, uh, won't fool the executive and and certainly won't be the one that stands out in the mind of that executive as the firm that they want to partner with. Yeah, that's great. Helpful. Question uh, regarding the current headwinds, this these rumors of inflation that I think are unsubstantiated, et cetera. Uh, this might also be, you know, this is what these PE partners do for a living, do better than I, I do. But curious from your perspective, your vantage point anyway, how PE partners should be thinking about the investment environment, climate, strategy, and if you have any thoughts on exactly where the Dow is going, I'd love to hear because. <laughs> um, what is the thing that the joke that somebody said that, that they've they've predicted the last five recessions and on three of them, they were right or something like that? I mean, you, you know, there's there's always one coming around the corner. I, 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 I'd like to look that up because <laughs> uh, it's. It's actually funny. Um, I will tell you, that, so the last significant downturn that we saw, that we all saw, was COVID. And we, like everybody else, that wasn't a, this might happen. That was suddenly overnight, this is happening. And we, like everybody else, sort of wondered what was going to happen. Um, let me tell you what happened in our client base. For about two months, they were very focused on housekeeping with respect to their current portfolio companies. So there were some supply chain issues. There were, there were a number of issues that um, faced certain portfolio companies, and they immediately had to focus on those. There was almost no investing going on uh, because there was a bunch of uncertainty, both for buyers and sellers, and so everybody froze. And then Almost every single one of our exec, uh, uh, sorry, of our clients at about the two-month mark into COVID said to us in a somewhat confidential tone, you know, 
while everybody else is freaking out about COVID, we are looking aggressively to invest capital. And as if they were maybe the only ones, but we heard that from every single one. I think it was Warren Buffett who said, um, when everybody else is, is getting greedy, you should get scared. And when everybody else is scared, that's time to be greedy. Um, and I think that's, there's some, there's some um, wisdom there that can be applied now. <clears throat> if everybody else is freaking out about Ukraine war or global warming or inflation or recession, that's the time to be thinking carefully about where can I, uh, where can I deploy some capital when everybody else is scared. The other thing about private equity, and this, I'm not telling you private equity audience anything they don't know, um, the funds that they raise are re relatively sticky. They don't go anywhere. Um, when there's a big pullback um, in private equity investing, the committed funds that they have from their LPs uh, typically aren't going anywhere. And as long as somebody is not at the very end of their fundraising cycle, um, sorry, of their fund cycle, they've got some dry powder, they usually are willing to be patient for three or four months let sort of the markets settle out a little bit and hope to use or hope to experience the pending downturn as an opportunity for some uh, downtick in pricing so that they can acquire um, more advantageously. So these downturns don't tend to, um, in a sustained way, impact uh, deal volume for a long period of time, sometimes as long as a year, but usually not not much longer than that. And with your broader perspective, are you seeing a recovery, a soft landing yet? Do you have any thoughts on that yet as an economist? No, no. Okay. I've given up. I've absolutely given up predicting. Um, one thing I will say, though, I mean, maybe there's a prediction inherent in this. For our part, we don't pull back on staffing at all uh, when we see these things happening. Uh, in part because our clients, when when the auction deal flow dries up, and that that may that may have happened, and whether that may be turning around, I don't know. But it does seem like a lot of the the deals kind of went away while people were trying to figure out what was going on. Um, our clients get busy getting creative about other sources of deal flow, and executives are a really important source of non-traditional or non-auction. Uh, source of deal flow. So they get very interested in executives uh, just when the deal flow dries up. So we have a little bit of a um, self-correction going on for our business that keeps us busy. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, if we could just switch to uh, data analytics and dashboards, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. I appreciate the extra time. Uh, maybe first thinking about the current climate and headwinds and so on, uh, thinking about the PE world and turning a successful investment uh, with a portfolio company and bolt-ons and so on. How do you view uh, data analytics, dashboards, uh, visibility into metrics and so on in their world? I don't know if you have any unique insight from your vantage point or just general opinion, but whatever you have. So I will say that our involvement tends to be very heavily pre-deal. Um, so my understanding of how they use data in their in their portfolios um, is a little a little bit more distant, but I can confidently say that private equity firms, most of the ones we deal with, will proudly tell you that they don't interfere with their um, their management teams, 
Uh, they largely let them run on their own. They try to hire really good management teams and then let them do their thing. At the same time, they never want to get caught by surprise. Um, so they they want really good data about what's going on in their portfolio companies so that they can identify problems early on and, and frankly, make management switches as early as, as, as they can when, they're, when the problem boils down to leadership. At the same time, they don't want to hassle their management teams uh, and they don't want to uh, impede them and, and, and slow them down by data requests. So having really good data often in a relatively standardized form that they can digest quickly so that they can assess the four or five portfolio companies that each individual at a, at a private equity firm is most focused on is of high value to them. Um, so that, that, that's yeah. on, on the private equity firm and side. For my firm... I was just going to add, I think it goes without saying that that hands off the, you know, the, the, the proud stance of, of hey, we, we put in the right team and we let them do their thing goes away the moment there's a downturn or in the company or if they can't see what's happening. I mean, if you're in the fog of war, it, it, the, the baser human nature fills it with suspicion and anxiety and that goes out the window. So I, you know, in, in, I, I have the sense working with several PE firms that the more the board's informed, the more hands off they can be. I think that's more or less what you're saying. Oh, I think, I think you're 100% right. And I can reflect on that just as a leader of my, my micro company. Um, when I don't know what's going on in a department or with a group or with one of our clients, I start to, to spin stories uh, and they typically aren't, aren't the most rosy. Um, until I look at the actual data, and then I know, do I actually have a problem or not? And usually it's, it's more optimistic looking at the data than my mind will spin the story. Almost always. So in your case, uh, we've developed some dashboards with you, uh, and that's fairly recent. So you've gone from pre-BI, Excel-run business, to BI mm -hmm. and dashboards. Uh, any, yeah. any lessons learned you can share with fellow executives, et cetera? Sure. I mean... I think that to whatever extent you think you might want to slightly formalize your data um, and, and your approach to it, you're off by, I don't know, a factor of five maybe. Um, we sort of, I, and I think business leaders make this mistake commonly, you probably know better than I do. If you had asked me four years ago, say pre-BI, pre pre-dashboards, how good a handle do you have on your company data? I would have said pretty good, pretty good. Um, I'd say I'm looking at 80% of the data that I need to to make the right decisions for the company. Now that I have uh, much better visibility into the data, um, I would say that I'm looking at five times the data that I was, um, five times the meaningful data that I was, so at best, I was looking in that previous life at 16% of the data that I really should be looking at. That was at. good math. Keep going. If I think that might have been good math, I'm, I'm 80 divided by 5 is what I was going for. Um, so I would say you probably underestimate that if you're, if you're going intuitively. And then the other thing I would say, and I'm a, I'm a data point of one, but for what it's worth, we went from a low growth company to a decently moderate growth company almost exactly when we went uh, to more formal uh, business intelligence through Blue Margin. Um, 
you know, we were, it, it, it's always hard to trace exactly the causes of those things. Um, and, and we were trying to do a lot of things right, but having the right data was integral to us having meaningful and efficient management meetings and making efficient, <clears throat> efficient, good decisions about the business. Yeah. Um, and our business can only scale so fast because we're, we're not a software company. You know, we are an expertise company. Uh, so even getting to this moderate growth um, is, a, is a real win for us. And we credit uh, just better data with a big part of that. Yeah, I would I would say it was pure causation. <laughs> Two more things. One is uh, you've seen a few leaders, 40,000 at least. Do you is your theory, if you have one, that those folks are, if you will, born with innate qualities that make them great? Or is this a skill that anyone can learn, like public speaking, et cetera? You know, um, I guess my observation would be that good managers build good managers, right? So if they're very good well-managed companies like, let's say, Danaher is an example that's often used in the industrials context. Um, they've got great managers and they grow great managers. That would lead me to believe that great managers are can be taught, great management can be taught. When you talk to the really good managers about what they did and how they did it, very performance-oriented, very data-driven, uh, very support. Um, I would say not quite heartless, but but very cut and dried with respect to um, the people who are performing and the, the subsidiaries that are performing, the products that are performing, support the heck out of them, but make quick decisions to move on uh, from those that are not performing. I don't think that that is, um, I don't think that's a magical quality to be able to do that. I think seeing other people do it um, and gaining conviction that it works is probably uh, a, a, a much more reliable way and a much more common way of arriving at that capability. So yeah. I don't think yeah. it's a matter of being born with it. Yeah, and hopefully showing up without too many demons to exercise. Um, and then lastly, thinking about, uh, this will be something relevant to me at some point, uh, transitioning from owning a company. I mean, you, you meet with a lot of these executives. You talked about the irony of getting the reward, and it was sort of an anti-reward to have all the right. time you wanted and nothing to do with, with real purpose. Yeah. Any, yeah. any advice uh, as, as uh, executives approach that part of their life? think about retirement versus staying engaged? How do they sail off into the sunset and not lose their sense of purpose, that kind of thing? Yeah. I, I, my, my short version of that is retirement doesn't work. That's my, that's my three-word, way-too-simplistic statement. Um, <clears throat> granted, uh, the people that I work with, are, there's a selection bias there. They're people who, who want to keep, keep doing things. But I, I see executives who retire and really go into what we think of as a tr traditional retirement, like heavy on the leisure, uh, very low on the structure, seem to age fast. And if they can pull out of it within two or three years of, quote, retiring, they are greatly relieved. After about two or three years, it can be hard to pull out of it because they start to become less relevant, less sharp, their 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 reflexes, their their muscle memory is starting to fade with respect to to how to operate effectively uh, in the business world. That being said, um, I think 
if you can maintain a sense of purpose uh, while allowing more white space to show up on your calendar, that's the win. Um, I don't think vast, you know, sort of months in a row of white space on the calendar, that's what I have not heard work for anybody. People say, you know, I decided to take a year off and, you know, after two months, I was ready to jump back in is, is kind of the common, the common refrain. Um, so I'm all for vacations. I'm all for um, delegating like crazy, um, developing the capabilities of people around you. I'm all for rethinking your role, uh, reducing your hours um, and getting more white space on the calendar. But, you know, think about it in terms of hours and days. Don't think of it in terms of months. That's where it seems to go wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the fallacy of, of, of marketing that vacation, by definition, is a change of pace. And it doesn't work when that's your only pace. I mean, it drives you, yeah, drives you nuts. Although I see, see some people do it and I think, how? How do you do that nonstop? So there are some exceptions. Sure. Um, okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, uh, what's next on the horizon for you and how can people get a hold of you and connect with you if they want to? You know, we're at the stage now where we have, I'm very fortunate. I've got a senior team that has been with me uh, for you know the better part of the last decade. They really know what they're doing. I've been able to elevate my game quite a bit as a CEO because I've got people doing what I used to do and doing it much better uh, than I used to do it. So we are um, we are looking to continue to grow our client base. If private equity firms are interested, what I would say is this: private equity firms who are interested in how to build an executive arsenal, I'm an evangelist for it, and I'll talk to anybody about it. Um, will I? Will I? throw in a pitch for Notch Partners? Sure, I will. Um, but if somebody came to me and said, um, we don't want to work with Notch Partners, but we do want to build this capability internally, can we talk about it? I would spend an hour with any private equity leader who's trying to figure that out. I think it's an important, it's an important part of our economy. It's a fun challenge. We've learned a lot. Um, and I'd be happy to kind of share my view. Executives who think they want to work with private equity um, and don't quite know how to get a toehold uh, should certainly reach out to us, and our website directs them how to how to get connected. That's great. Okay, thanks so much, Andy. It's a pleasure to uh, chat with you and see you face to face and see you in person soon. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. Talk soon.